Hello and welcome to Catholic Parents Online, a podcast where we share tips and resources on Catholic parenting. This is brought to you by the Theology of the Body Parenting Team of the Apostolate for Catholic Truth. Presented with the lens of the Theology of the Body, we will see how we can be a sincere gift of ourselves to our kids in ways that will help them find true happiness and flourish in accordance with God's wonderful plan for each and every one of them. My name is John Hui and I'm your host for this podcast. Today, we are very happy to start a series of episodes interviewing Mr. Brian Shen, a much sought-after speaker and counsellor. And today, he will be covering a very important topic that all Catholic parents, indeed all parents, should be aware of. Affirmation. Yes, affirmation. As briefly discussed in one of our early episodes, affirmation is something that all children need. Indeed, it is something which all of us crave for deep within our beings. It helps affirm our identities as lovable beings made in the image and likeness of God by love, to love, for love. And rightly given, and of course with God's grace and mercy, affirmation will go a long way in giving our kids much, much strength to flourish and face the future with confidence. Brian is a professional counsellor and supervisor registered with the Singapore Association for Counselling. He has much experience in working with clients, both young and the not-so-young, including, of course, parents. He is also a member of the International Federation for Therapeutic Counseling and Choice, or IFTCC for short. Welcome to the show, Brian. Thank you, How have you been? How have you been this past week? Um, busy as usual. <laughs> Sounds like the Brian we know. <laughs> yes, and have you time to really um, take a little bit of a breather here and there? I try to get what I can in between. That's great. That's great. I understand that you're um, helping to take care of your mom too? Yes, she's getting older. Um, her short-term memory is not so good, so we are taking care of her emotional needs more. Yeah, okay, but that sounds like me too. <laughs> so anyway, um, Brian, I understand you'll be uh, doing a very important session for us today, and uh, that's on affirmation. So perhaps it would be really good for us to listen to you from here then. Take it away, Brian. Thank you, John. So today, um, the topic is uh, the difference between development and affirmation. Of course, um, all of us as parents, uh, all of you as parents are very concerned about your children's development um, in terms of their academic achievements, their character development, um, their behavior, skills development, uh, what is acceptable, um, and their future, their status in the future, and even possibly uh, the good name that they can bring to themselves and to a family. All parents are understandably concerned about these developments. Today, I want to stress the importance of affirmation, and I'd like to explain what is affirmation from the viewpoint of the brain's development. So if you could Google search, now this is a podcast, so you know I, I don't have a screen, but you could Google search the three parts of the human brain, the three parts of the human brain. Um, you will find um, many pictures of showing that the human brain is actually made up of three evolutionary parts. The first one is called the reptilian brain. The second is called the mammalian brain, 
and the third is known as the human brain or the thinking brain. Now, these three parts are evolutionary. In other words, it develops according to the evolution of how animals uh, develop over time. Now, the reptilian part of the human brain, um, it's, it's there at birth, and it is dealing with just two things, survival and reproduction. And its functionality is mostly hardware, if I can put it that way. It's, it's written out in the genes, and it has its own time to you know, be physically ready for reproduction. Uh, it has its own biological mechanisms, when to get hungry, when to eat, and, and all of that. Um, so it's usually fully available and fully functional at birth. Now, the next level of evolution is called the mammalian brain. And as you know, mammals come after reptiles. And in the mammalian brain, uh, and the interesting part is the word mammalian comes from the mammary gland in which um, the young suckles from the mammary glands of the mother. Now, in some languages, um, they don't have the word mammals, but uh, it, they say it's animals that suckle from the, the mother. Uh, that's in other languages. So when suckling is happening, what's happening in the brain of both the mother and the child is that oxytocin is being released. And oxytocin is sometimes known as the love uh, hormone, or rather the bonding hormone. And oxytocin is not only released during uh, suckling, but it's also released during grooming, during group activities, when they are sleeping together and snuggling and hugging each other. So you find that mammals typically move as a group, and the grouping does increase their chances of survival. So you can see a pack of wolves or a pod of uh, um, uh, dolphins and uh, monkeys, they, they all move in, in groups, and the grouping increases their chances of survival. And then for humans, there is this part called the neocortex or the thinking brain. And in humans, that is big. It's really huge. It's, it's really, really, uh, it, it's like a, a kind of a monster in comparison in comparison to the uh, reptilian and the mammalian brain. Now, I forgot to mention that the mammalian brain is both hardware and software. In other words, its full functionality depends on the quality of the primary caregiver. In, in, in mammals, is usually the mother or even the father, the, if the father is, is involved in, in different species. For human beings, the full functioning of the mammalian brain is reached full um, maturity at age five years old. So what happens between birth and five years old, um, the software part depends very much on the quality of the caregiving. And <clears throat> this is really dependent on how well attuned now, when I say attune, I mean emotional attunement, not the logical, because the child's logical brain hasn't fully developed at this young age.
So it is more the emotional attunement. And, and that's a software portion uh, that makes up the function of the mammalian brain. And then somewhere around five years old, or actually it starts a little bit earlier, but then the functioning of the thinking brain starts around five years old. And it, it, it's all software. It's, it's about knowledge. It's about uh, language. It's about thinking what is right and wrong, uh, what is um, morality, virtues, and even religion. So all that's up in the thinking brain. Now, <clears throat> if you look at, um, if you can again Google search, um, what are the various components of human memory? Now, the way humans are, uh, remember things, or even human consciousness, human consciousness takes up only 5% of the whole human brain. And it's up there at the thinking brain. And human memory, the way we remember, um, it's also up in the thinking brain. Why? Because it has to pass through our language abilities. So, for example, if I were to ask anybody, what is your earliest memory? Down to what age can you remember and what age were you? Now, most people would say, oh, I, mm, the first memory is, uh, I think I'm in kindergarten. I think I'm, in, I'm about maybe three, four, five years old, some six years old. It, it's about there, depending. Each person is different. And I said, describe it. Well, well, I could, you know, I was holding my mother's hands or we were about to cross the street. Across the street, there was a pink car. There was a red uh, uh, post box. Uh, I remember I was next to a cupboard. I was in the room. So you can describe it so the way humans remember is actually up at the thinking brain, and it's called declarative memory. Now, the mammalian brain has what is known as emotional memory, and that is not descriptive. That is felt, and that it is not connected with any kind of logic. So let me give an example of, let's say, a one-year-old child. If I were to accidentally hurt the child, maybe I stepped the foot of the, on the child, and the child cries. Now, there is no amount of logic I can use to, to placate the child. Okay, say, oh, sorry, I didn't see you. You know, I didn't know you were there. The child will just be upset and afraid of me. And even the next day when a child sees me, the child will recoil. Um, there is no logic connected to the emotion of the child. So every time the child sees me, he'll be afraid, he'll be scared. Um, so it is, it's all on the emotional, nothing to do with logic. So the mammalian brain, or the, sometimes we call it the emotional brain, does not have logic. But that is below consciousness. That is below the thinking brain. Now, if you can imagine if a child constantly feels fear, constantly feels that it is not being uh, listened to. Now, when I say not being listened to, I don't mean in the thinking way or in the language way because the child hasn't developed that fully. But remember I was saying about the emotional attunement. So if the primary caregiver is busy or the primary caregiver is always afraid of something, 
and therefore is not properly attuned, and therefore the child also doesn't feel that the primary caregiver is attuned, then the child may have a semi-fearful or what we call ambivalent, that means I'm not sure all the time, or at the worst stage, it's always filled with fear, fear of being abandoned, fear of being scolded, fear that there's actually no logic, okay, connected at that young age, but it is fear. Now, <clears throat> fear can drive the child to do many things. The child can become clingy, the child can become demanding, the child can become angry in order to get attention. All kinds of stuff can happen there. Now, what I want to speak about is if parents are overly conscious, overly anxious about the child's development, overly anxious about a child's good behavior, and is constantly reprimanding, scolding, or, or um, you know, cautioning and, and telling the child, don't do this, don't do that. And the child develops a fear-based emotional drive to be good behavior, good behaving, to be studying all the time. Now, what happens is that the child may become very academically inclined to achieve, may be very, very good in behavior, will be very cautious about um, you know, what it says, how it speaks, but all that is fear-driven. That's very sad. Why? Because the child now becomes very fearful of not being loved if I don't perform, if I'm not clever, if I'm not behaving. Now, the sad thing is that what's up there at the um, human brain is also putting up an act. So the child can put up an act, and the child is praised for putting up an act, but the child never, never feels that the child is loved and affirmed, even if the child doesn't do well. And that is very sad. Now, affirmation is very crucial in allowing the child to feel who she is or who he is in relation to other people, regardless of what other people think, regardless of unfair remarks, regardless of what people judge. In other words, with affirmation, your child is able to withstand unfair and a terrible judgment, bullying, or put it the other way around, without affirmation, your child is unable to withstand even the slightest remarks, even the slightest slights or bullying or remarks that happens. If you are in a school environment or, the, you know, or in a society where everybody is very picky about your performance, about your behavior, or you must always not put your school um, in bad light. You must always show that you are a good, 
Christian, a good Muslim, a good Hindu. So if it is always um, reminding you that you must not bring bad name, then a child who is not affirmed will be more affected by these admonishments or, or constant reminders, and the child can never learn to be himself or herself. That will be very sad. And it can also be very unforgiving. It becomes an environment that becomes very unforgiving. Over time, only the highest performing person will be rewarded. And over time, each profession will get more and more demanding and very, very pedantic. I mean, the word is pedantic. Uh, pedantic means over, overly conscious, overly uh, paying too much attention on details. Now, I want to highlight how dangerous that is. If we are not careful, we will impose those high standards to our children and we will look very, very cruel. So, unfortunately, I've seen that dynamic happening on parents, onto their children, far too often, far too often. Um, you can imagine what kind of parents would want to prove that they are of high standards, and that is parents who themselves have never been affirmed. So, when you have this dynamic where your child's achievement, your child's high performance is your pride, is, is what you want to have. And of course, the, the, the more you're unaffirmed, the more you want that. Now, when you have that dynamic, now here's the sad thing. In, in families where this dynamic is happening, the child that is obedient, the child that is giving you what you want is the child who never himself or herself is affirmed. And the child who is rebellious, trying to find his own way, trying to find his own being, that's the child is trying very hard to be himself or herself. And the 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 kind of dynamic that happens in such family I see is that parents will, will punish this rebellious child and sometimes very, very harshly with harsh words or even physical punishments. And these harsh punishments will drive the good child to be further highly performing, very good behavior, but again, all fear-driven because the punishment drives further fear in that child, and that child now continues to be even more high-performing, even more not himself and not herself. And the cycle continues from one generation to the next. That's very sad. Now, um, <clears throat> a lot of times when this cycle continues, and if you continue to have high performance, you continue to have promotions, you continue to have rewards from the company, from 
um, the, the, the institutions or the departments that you work, then you don't see anything wrong with it. Um, but there will be consequences further down the line, as you, as I, uh, the, the, all the other podcasts will will be talking about what happens when the high performance is fear driven, or it's driven by this lack of affirmation. So I, I hope to be able to um, at least get your uh, attention up, uh, maybe with a tinge of uh, a strong warning. Um, to be careful about what we think is right and to pay more attention to what God really wants of us as parents and uh, from us as parents to our children. So that's all I have for the first podcast. I'll uh, hand back to John for any questions he may have. Well, thank you very much, Brian, for the, the very enlightening sharing that you just um, uh, gave us. I'm just wondering, right, about this um non-affirmation that many uh, individuals actually might feel um, based on the so-called conditional love that they have uh, grown up with from their parents. How can they recognize this within themselves um, in such a way that they can try to address it and therefore not repeat the so-called vicious cycle with their own children? You know, What can they do um, to try to actively um, identify these factors and these issues within themselves and really how what, what can they do to avoid um, um, handing on these uh, uh, baggages to their children? I, I think that's a very good question and um, I, I'd like to answer it with a Catholic, Catholic um, perspective. Now in our Catholic Church um, we value humility, and we always um, caution against pride. Unfortunately, um, people who lack affirmation, they need to cling on to something that gives them something to be proud of, more than someone who is affirmed, actually. Okay? It's precisely because of the lack of affirmation that they need to cling on to something um, that, that says, I'm a good person, I'm a good man. So um, they are more susceptible to good name and, and pride. Unfortunately, um, there, there is this false idea that once I am married, once I am a father or a mother, then I'm automatically someone who should know what is right. That's not true. And if we have been going on um, thinking like that for a long time, it becomes harder to be told the truth that, hey, you know, you're not listening, you, you know, you, you are pushing your agenda too much um, because it hurts the pride. So um, <clears throat> it, humility requires courage. Hiding behind pride is cowardice. Uh, these are pretty hard things, but you know, the, the greatness of God's salvation is that He saves us from our cowardice and He provides our salvation through our courage to admit our mistakes. So, 
I would say the first thing, if you are a husband and wife, is listen to your spouse. And if you don't listen to your spouse, I think... We'll uh, be in trouble. We'll be in trouble. <laughs> uh, not only that, um, you're not giving your spouse the opportunity to guide you to be a saint. Now, the, the job of a wife is to help the husband be a saint. And the job of a husband is to help the wife be a saint. And the saint is not someone who is doing all everything right all the time. That's, that's not a saint. I think that's a what saint, I try to tell my wife. <laughs> a saint is someone who listens to what God is saying, and God speaks through many, many um, sources. And in a marriage, actually, um, the first channel is actually the spouse. Okay, and if the spouse really, really cares for you, the, the spouse will be telling you the truth so that you can uh, be aware of your blind spots, okay, and, and, and make the correction. So I would say in a, in a marriage, in a, in a husband and wife situation, how can we know is, is when we have somebody uh, you know, in our spouse who, um, who really cares for us and speaks to us out of love. That, that's the first one. Um, however, I can also understand that there are spouses who grew up with this habit of correcting by saying hurtful words. They themselves grew up in such a family environment, and therefore, in order to correct the spouse, they do the same thing. They do hurtful words. Now, that's not very helpful because over time, you see, the brain is always trying to defend from, from hurts. And if you keep upping the, the, the hurtful words, you, you, you increase, you know, the, the, the more the person don't tell, the, the harder you speak, the, the more punishments you give, uh, then the, the brain now becomes anticipatory. It, it anticipates the hurtful words. And you, you, once you reach a stage where even before you can say anything, your spouse is saying, don't say what I know you're about to say. <laughs> and that, that's when you cross the line and it's very difficult for the other party to, to listen to you. Uh, it becomes very helpful when we have the extended family. And what do I mean by the extended family? In the old days, you have the... Um, you know, family live in, in the same village and, and you have families, uh, you know, relatives very close together. I think in the modern times, um, I would say the church becomes an important extended family. And th there is a benefit in telling the truth without an imposition of the truth. I say again, there is a benefit in telling the truth without imposing it. It's very important to let the person hear the truth, but not forcing the person to make up his or her decision. Why is that? Because when the person who knows that there is no imposition, but decides to do what is right, then the reward for Deciding to do what is right is entirely his or hers, not the one who imposes it. And that's very crucial. We must always, firstly, 
have the freedom to make the decision ourselves when we can, so that we reap the rewards of the good decisions we make, as well as we hold the responsibility of the decisions we make. And that is something we should learn to have, as well as learn to pass on to our children. So we need to have that experience first before we can pass it on to our children. And what better way to learn about hearing the truth without imposition so that we can make our own decisions? What better way to learn that than from the extended families? Okay, so I think the extended family that we can build up together as a church community becomes very useful. And allow me to uh, speak about friendship because this is also something that builds up um, church community, builds up family. There are three kinds of friendship. Um, the first kind is the friendship of utility. That means if I know you, there's some usefulness and uh, I, I, friend, I befriend you because you're useful to me. Okay, maybe you're a contractor or maybe you're a rich man. But when you are no more having what I want, you know, I'm no more your friend. That's the, the friendship of utility. And then there's a friendship of pleasure. Oh, you drink beer. I drink beer. I'm your good, your good friend. Oh, you know, you like roller skating. and I'm going roller skating. Uh, no, we, we go together. Okay. Some kinds of uh, friendship of pleasure is not good. But then there is the friendship of virtues. The friendship of good morality where because of the morality you hold, I really like to talk to you. I really like to be with you. Now, that's the real thing. That's, that's the one that God is in the middle of all our conversations. Now, first and foremost, that should be there between husband and wives. <laughs> okay. And secondly, if that also uh, is there in the extended family, in the church, Wonderful. Okay, and uh, th there's so much to, to be gained there. And I think to answer your question, if we have both of this, and not just between your wife, between the spouse, but also within the extended family, then we have all the opportunities to learn about our blind spots, to learn about where we can improve. And I think that will be very, very useful to have. I hope that, that answers the question. Yes, it certainly does. And I think it does. Uh, you brought up a very important point of humility that uh, all of us uh, must have in order to be able to um, see within ourselves through the mirror that others provide, and especially our spouses who know us, who should know us the best, right? And, um, and as you mentioned, the um, extended uh, village, so to speak, right? And, and in our case, the church. So our connection with our spouse and our connection with the church are very important um, pillars, so to speak, uh, to help us um, in this self-identification of the issues that we might have within ourselves and ready to uh, start the process of uh, healing, so to speak, so that we can actually be even better spouses, even better parents, even better children of God. You know? Indeed, indeed. indeed. Here's another important thing about how do we build family? And that is the importance of keeping private information sacred. Now, what do I mean by that? Let me give an example of, uh, let's say, within the family. 
a mother knows some information about her children that is extremely private. It is very important that she keeps this information sacred. The same for a father who may know certain information about the child or even the spouse. It's very important that they keep this information sacred. Now, what do I mean by sacred? It means this is a privilege for you to know. It may be something very sensitive. It may be something um, that the other people outside of the family may not fully understand. And it's very important to keep to be able to keep this private and confidential and only to people that you really, really trust. Now, if you can imagine, if a parent does not keep such private information about their children, private and confidential, and they speak, oh, my son is like that, or my daughter is like that, your son and your daughter will never share with you very intimate information anymore. And that's going to be disastrous. Absolutely. Yeah. So it will be the same in an extended family in the church. And we need to be able to show that if you share something very private about yourself and you chose me to tell me about your private information, then it is my duty to keep that information sacred. And if I think someone else should know, I will tell you, I will say, I think this person should know and these are the reasons, would you give me permission to tell this person? And if you say no, I will still not tell. But, you know, if you say yes, then I will tell the person in the same way, you know, that this is a very private information. I think it is useful for that person to know that you know, you know, so it goes both ways. So this is something, another um, important aspect for uh, us to know, not just within the family, but also in the extended family. Yes, I, th I think this uh, respect for the privacy of the other is so important and I fully agree with you on that one. You know, otherwise the element of trust would totally be lost and the whole relationship would be gone because the whole relationship has to be based on trust, isn't it? Yeah. And I, I was just thinking that um, uh, besides um, the need to turn to spouse and um, um, extended family members and church and so on, I, I'm thinking that um, the virtue of humility is also important for us to recognize that sometimes we need to go beyond if we think that our issues are deeper and while our family members, our spouse, our church friends might raise certain aspects of our personality, our character, not out of spite, but really out of love and concern. And we know that, okay, there's an issue and, and perhaps there's a need for me to seek further help, to see a counsellor, to see a psychologist or even a psychiatrist if necessary. And I think that um, this virtue of humility is so important for us to really act on that in order that we can seek the right help for the issue that we are facing as well. And I think I, on that point of view, I, I guess you would probably agree with me that we sh I would like to encourage listeners um, on this podcast to not be afraid to turn to professional help if needed to address some of the issues that are really uh, perhaps are deeper and might affect our uh, relationship with our family members and even affect our ability to um, function well as spouses and parents. Would you agree? Oh, yes. I, I, I totally agree with that. Um, just as, you know, maybe 2,000 years ago or even 1,000 years ago where certain sickness is, is looked upon with a lot of stigma and now we don't. We should also 
regard some of these um, psychological inabilities not with stigma, but something to understand. And there are already some therapies that can help us reduce the effects of some of these um, past software. Remember, I was talking about the mammalian brain and you have the software, and some of these software still function and can be a, 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 an obstacle to the better relationship that we can have. Um, some of these software are actually um, defensive. It's, it actually is helpful at that time, at that situation where maybe your family of origin was very difficult, um, your growing up years had all these challenges, and they are still there. Um, every time there is a feeling of uncertainty, a feeling of uh, the threat of losing relationships, and, and all these defenses comes up, and it may come up only because of these memories. And there are ways in which these can be reduced, and there should be no uh, stigma in, in understanding these. Now, I say very often to parents, and many parents, they come and see me very often when, when things with the children become very late and some parents say, why, why what did I do wrong and, and you know, where did we go wrong? These are very common uh, uh, statements that parents make. And I want to say to parents, you didn't do these things purposely wrong, so don't be hard on yourself. That, that's the first thing. Secondly, it is so much better if we know ahead of time. Um, again, if I use the analogy of uh, the, the medical field, if you do a medical check and if the doctor check your background history, your family, you know, what are the trends, and the doctor say, okay, so based on your, uh, your, your, your medical check as well as your family history, we can tell that you have a higher risk of diabetes or the higher risk of high blood pressure or whatever that may be. You haven't reached there yet, but I think it's better that you start early so you never get into that situation. That can be done also in the psychosocial developmental area. We can look at the past and we can also look at um, what are your traits and things that can affect your family and your children without you knowing. Now, I, for many of these parents, I would say the good that you did not know you did not have is what you cannot pass to your children, obviously, because you didn't know. And the bad that you did not know was bad, but you grew up with it, that's what you will pass on to your children. And you wouldn't know. So in the same way, okay, so if you lack affirmation and that drives you to high performance, you don't think anything is wrong. And you will pass that on to your children by this fear of losing out, this fear of uh, you know, not, not doing well, people looking bad at you, and you want your children to have the good name and the good results, you will pass it on, and you wouldn't feel anything was wrong. And it goes, goes on to the next and to the next generation until one of your children rebels against you. And a lot of things can happen, and you think the one that's rebelling against you is, is, is doing bad, actually, is the other way around. You know, so um, it'd be very good uh, if you put aside the stigma 
and, and find a good uh, mental health professional. I would recommend if you can find one that can integrate the understanding of um, psychology as well as the developmental issues together with your faith. That will be the best. So I, I, I would also recommend many mental health professionals to do the same. Do not be afraid to integrate your faith into your profession because, you know, it will be so helpful uh, to the people who come and seek your help. I believe there are some new um, research coming out from, um, I can't remember which university, that showed that if you integrate a person's sense of the divine, the sense of God, even if the person is an atheist, just speaking about something beyond what is understood in this present world, there is measurable benefits for the client. So imagine if the client is already a Christian, and then you add on these uh, spiritual aspects into their understanding of their psychological health, there will be an improvement. So um, definitely for Christian counselors and Christian professionals, mental health professionals, yes, there would definitely be better benefits if they integrate both their profession as well as the spiritual aspects. Yeah, and I'm just also uh, thinking about your point about the mammalian brain being developed by five years old and um, this um, need for all these processes of affirmation to be really in place even before that, right? Um, and if not, and if children are exposed to such so-called conditional love that they are only praised for what they can do, for what they can achieve, um, and they are not allowed to, in a way, show themselves to be who they are and develop them accordingly. I'm just wondering whether at the, at there's such a point whereby, you know, beyond a certain age, there's a lot of uh, difficulty in letting the child know to reverse that process of reaffirming that person who is now perhaps an adult to help him or her realize the intrinsic goodness that he or she already possesses and that he can be lovable, he can be loved for he who for who he or she is and that he doesn't have to achieve in order to be loved. I, I know it's going to be tough because um, of the fact that the mammalian brain, you know, is developed by five, but um, can that be done? Well, <clears throat> first and foremost, I need to say that um, the software, well, software being software, it, it can change after, after the age of five. So, for example, a child may actually grow up in, in a very loving environment, a farming environment, and then when the child goes to school, it can be six, seven years old, and, you know, the, the, the school is full of competition and bullies and, and the environment is just so unaffirming. Um, and then maybe if, if maybe even the, the family now goes through a divorce, a breakup, things can go bad, yes, okay? Um, the other way around where, you know, the, the, the child grows up in a family where there's a lot of problems, yes, the, the initial software um, programming in the first few years are very crucial and, and they have a very deep uh, effect. Um, and then the child is now put into an environment that's loving, very hard work, a lot of hard work involved. Now, the, 
primary caregiver, basically the parents or, or the foster parents or, you know, the, the people who are looking after the child, really got to be very, very patient uh, all the time because the child will be always fearful, unsure. And even when you, you don't see any reason why the child is doubting you, the child will doubt you because of the software that is, you know, from the very young, I, I don't trust you. Okay, I'm not sure when you're going to um, turn around and, and, and scold me. So the worst cases I've known is when parents who know what is the right thing to do, but every so once in a while fly into rage, and that rage traumatizes the child. That rage may not be often. It can be just a few times a year. Nothing can change the child's fear because the trauma is not, it's so deeply ingrained. It, it can, it's very difficult to erase the trauma. Okay, so even when you tell the child, you know, it's okay, you can fail, it's all right, but the child remembers the trauma of the person losing his temper in a bad way. So these are some of the challenges, okay? So um, trauma can happen in many ways. Uh, there's a trauma of neglect. So when parents go through a breakup, the parents are just fighting against each other, but the children are neglected, and that neglect can be very traumatizing. And they can send a, a tremendous negative message to the child. Many children, especially when they are still very young, think that the parents are breaking up because it's the children's fault. So that's pretty common. Um, <clears throat> and then you have the situation where uh, one parent says, all men are just like this or all women are just like that. And that affects the child's gender identity development also. So... Um, there is a lot of work to be done to undo the damage done. Um, many times it requires the child to be actively aware of his or her own um, propensities, and that's not easy when a child is still young, especially when the child is still a teenager. Things can be very volatile. So most of the work that I do um, are those who are at least late teens or early 20s, 30s, and there's still a lot of hard work to try and undo some of these, um, it, you know, uh, software that is in the emotional side of things. However, again, um, for many of the cases that I see that there is a lot of improvement, there is a strong involvement in the prayer life, and that's when the work in the counseling and the psychological side has the best chances of improvement. So um, it takes a lot of time. Um, I also see that even though we cannot fully eradicate the feelings, but with the consciousness of this is my history, this is what I've been through, with those consciousness, that same person now becomes a very good educator of other parents, educator of the future generation, of not falling into these same um, difficulties that they grew up with. Okay, so it looks like the uh, um, moral of the story here is, number one, start right affirmation from as early as possible. 
all right? And uh, continue on from there, even after five, of course. Uh, but for those who have issues with this problem of non-affirmation, uh, help is still available, not easy. And uh, we should um, take effort to source this resources and assistance to in order to be able to address this uh, issue. And at the same time, never, never forget to really trust in the Lord's grace and mercy and pray and seek um, uh, solace and uh, comfort and community as well to, uh, as part of the journey, right? Yes. I, I think I'll need to add also that we do have a duty as the extended family. So, for example, if we are teachers, if we are the catechists, if we are the uncle, the aunties, the friends who do recognize in a child that is lacking this. And very often such a child is in a family where either the mother, the father, or they have their own stress, their own issues, and they are not able to be properly attuned to the child. And that's where the, the recognition from the extended family becomes very important. So, yes, um, the church is a very important, uh, has a very important function in, in this whole work of, of helping individuals uh, undo some of the things that they grew up with. What you've said actually is a very good and a very uh, concise, in a sense, summary of uh, some of the points brought up in the earlier episodes, yeah? when we talked about the connection with the child involving the so-called ABCs, right? Where we need to, number one, A, affirm the child in the right way, B, to really be there for them. And it means that really putting them at the high priority and really re-examining our busyness in, at work uh, and in other areas of our lives in order that we can really be there for our children where they need us and uh, see in communicating with our children in a way that um, express, allows them to express themselves, to listen to them, and to really understand where they're coming from. And uh, D, when we discipline, we want to discipline with gentleness and discipline out of love and with consistency, right? Yeah, and um, E, being um, really being able to empathize with the child, like what you said, to really feel what the child is feeling. Let the child know that you are feeling what the child is feeling so that he or she can... Um, Trust that you are listening, that you are uh, really being there, connected with them and understanding what they are feeling and that they can then trust themselves with you um, even more, right? Yeah. Yes. And, yeah. And of course, when things go wrong, which they often do in family life, there's always the F that is forgiveness, <laughs> which is so much needed in, in uh, family life today, isn't it? And, yes. Yes. Yeah. Not just today, but for all time. Yes. Thank you for summarizing. Yeah. Well, I think you did a fantastic job today, Brian, and I really would like to thank you very much uh, uh, for this uh, session that you've had with us. And I think I'm sure many of us have learned so much uh, from what you've shared with us. And like I said, I'm continuing to learn new things all the time from yourself. And I really just wish I could have listened to you when I was a young parent many, many, many years ago. Yeah. But, thank uh, you well, for yeah. Thank you for giving me this opportunity to share. No problem at all. It's a really a pleasure and uh, we really enjoyed listening to you. And I believe that the next podcast we'll be talking about the uh, state of parents where we'll be seeing how uh, we as parents, we can address that issue a bit more as to how we can avoid passing on certain baggages <clears throat> to our children in a way that uh, will help them flourish uh, even better according to God's wonderful plan for them.
Thank you very much, John. Thank you very much, Brian. So till we meet again, everyone, take care, stay close to Jesus, and God bless you and your family always. Goodbye. Bye bye.